Good morning. Welcome to another episode of Cybersecurity Amplified and Intensified. We have with us today, John Wetzel of Recorded Future. Hey, John, how's it going? Hello. So to get started, do you want to give us a little uh, background info on you and as well as what is Recorded Future and what do you guys do over there? Sure. Um, so I, like you said, I work at Recorded Future. We are an intelligence company uh, that uh, basically, we, we're experts in data and intelligence, and we're trying to provide these types of services to security teams out there. I think a lot of times when you're in a security team, you're looking at your attack service or you're looking at your internal processes and you're like, hey, we need, we need this, this cyber threat intelligence data in here. Um, and so I think that does a couple things. One is you have this conception of like, all right, how are we going to make ourselves better? We're going to give ourselves all this data. And that's not usually the way to solve almost any problem because you're going to get very quickly into the information overload. So what we try to do is provide a level of what the right data is. We provide risk scoring around IPs and a context that you can actually see, all right, not just it's ransomware, C2 somewhere, but like what, what's involved in it? What's the history? What do we need to know about it at kind of a glance? Um, I'm currently the director of intelligence solutions there, uh, which means I do a little bit of stuff like this, uh, a little bit of going out and, uh, just basically trying to help educate, uh, clients and users about, uh, how, how do we actually apply intelligence in, in ways that make sense in their environment? Um, I, I think it's, it's been a, a really interesting journey. I've been there for about five and a half years now, as we've kind of, uh, gradually made more inroads as an industry and in figuring out like, how do we actually use intelligence in the right way? to solve the kind of information security crisis we're, we're currently in. Okay. And what, what's your background? How'd you end up at Recorded Future? Uh, a long and winding one. Uh, if you go back far enough, you'll find out that I actually went to Michigan State for piano performance and then uh, you know, shifted out of that into restaurants, then went to work at the Waldorf Astoria as a certified sommelier, then that's just a professional drinker. And, uh, then, um, it was 2008 and you know, Waldorf story is biggest clients for all places that kind of don't exist anymore. <laughs> so, uh, uh, during that time though, to pay for school, I'd gone to Iraq a couple of times at the army to be a, uh, I was a counterintelligence agent there. So I worked, uh, in Iraq, went to the, the fine country there, had some actually fairly delicious food. Um, then, uh, came back, went back over again in, uh, 09 and 10, and then, uh, spent five years working, actually six years working with the department of defense, um, doing counterintelligence there, uh, made a shift over to record a future, which kind of, kind of makes sense, right? Like it's an intelligence company, it's a startup, it's a different environment. Unlike the massive DOD machine, you can actually have impact, which is great. And, uh, been on, been on this wild ride since. So I guess with that history of yours, what do you think is the real threat that we're seeing these days in terms of security and cybersecurity? I think one of the big threats that we're seeing is this thing that actually started out in a really good place. You have this enablement of the individual to basically do so much that has huge impact on, on organizations in society. And it sounds like a really, really great thing. Like there is probably no better time than today to get into cybersecurity. I, I was reading a comment on Twitter about, um, the recent black hat, uh, and some of the presentations there. And I had the same thought, 
the quality of researchers that are out there is just so much better than what I, I grew up with and what I think that you've ever seen out there. Um, there's amazing, technically detailed, really thorough research happening. You have people that have, uh, that are mainly just like hackers from back in the day that now are learning R to dive deeply into it and really understand the data that they have there. I think the counterpoint to that is that adversaries are as well. Now, as a, as a malicious actor, I have more capability to cause real world impact and damage than I think at any other point in history as well. And you're starting to see this and it doesn't just have to be people that came up through a nation state or got their training or education there, or are backed by big organizations as individuals, you can have an outsized impact on, on security teams and on these organizations there. And it leads to this really hard to map world where we don't just have kind of one attack surface and like big adversaries that you can track and, you know, keep everything straight. You have a lot of really qualified adversaries who work in with a variety of tools in different ways. And that it's probably hard to block, let alone to even try and identify and capture. Do you think that ransomware is the real threat or is that just the end result of data exfiltration and other intelligence gathering operations? I think that you, you still have two kind of basic threats, right? You have one that's monetized and then you have one that is, is more information is the, is the goal. Um, I think that you, you have to think of both. I think ransomware is just the latest monetization and it happens to be a very successful one for, uh, adversaries where they're just trying to figure out like, how do we keep, you know, raising revenues? How do we keep identifying it? I think, you know, like a, a, almost a perverse way, like we had talked about in a previous podcast about like vendor responsibilities in a perverse way, you can almost say that the malicious actors in an economic sense, and this is no way justifying their actions, but are almost taking advantage of the investment that wasn't made prior in, in securing software and doing all the insecurity networks and enterprises and, you know, essentially, you know, forcing payment on, on the economy because that it's such a huge and dangerous threat there that, um, you know, they're taking advantage of and they're being really, really successful for it. You know, speaking of that previous podcast that we did together over at, I think, uh, rocket MSP with a great group of guys, you foresaw or foretold the Conti and Lockbit uptick, which I think everyone's living through right now. And most recently Accenture, who's probably number one in the world. Mm -hmm and what they do just by yeah. scale and probably the depth of their bench. How long have you guys been tracking this potential uptick? If you can discuss something like that for Conti and Lockbit too. So we track those types of actors, um, all the time. And I think it's, it's really critical, not just from a vendor space, but just from a security space to really understand how those markets uh, evolve and shift. It is not uncommon to see actors, uh, actors emerge and then and change and shift and grow. And so it's important if you have the resources to be able to kind of understand that. So it was, it, almost as soon as they're advertised, as soon as they're out there, um, we're watching it. And some of it comes from like earlier evolutions. You know, you saw that, uh, you see a lot of change in like access, uh, access brokers. Um, some of that came from like Emotet shutdowns earlier on in like in January, which seems like a lifetime ago. Uh, but you saw a lot of change up and shake up in that market as well. 
Um, so we've basically been looking at it. We have like a, one of our ransomware experts, it's Alan Liska. He looks at this stuff all the time, probably since I think 2016, 2017, he's been um, really just forecasting how bad this was going to be getting. What have you guys been seeing or in regards to the, the old guys like Darkseid, Revil, who went under? I know Recorder Future recently did an interview with some reps from Darkseid. Yeah. Or I'm sorry, uh, Black Matter. Black Matter, yeah. Um, I think you're still seeing a lot of the pattern repeat. You know, I talked about watching these actors and watching as the space evolved. Like you, you see um, Black Matter kind of referring back to Dark Side, which really got his origins as well from um, you know a previous group. So you saw Revil, who was really just a, a rehash of you know previous Gan Grab. Um, so these groups don't necessarily disappear and they're a lot more amalgus than you might think they are. It's not just like one group. There's usually authors, there's uh, affiliates, there's access brokers. All of these are different teams. All of these are different individuals and they can shift between um, kind of the, the rock stars in their group, right? Like some of the lead actors like Revil was notorious for having a little bit more lockdown kind of affiliate type base uh, where they're pushing out kind of this is our gospel and you, you can join our wagon to make money. Uh, but I, I think it's, I think you're starting to see some interesting shifts happening in the landscape where um, people are coming to more recognition that affiliates are kind of free trading. They're really willing to shift between what ransomware and what monetization factor they're using. Uh, they're going between actual ransoming to uh, extortion. Um, and then you see the kind of the learning curve as they're coming up there. Like I know a lot of it's been around like, you know, some people are questioning Lockbit's uh, credibility because the, you know they're trying to leak stuff, and it looks like it took a couple days, and then this, they have information for Accenture out there, but it's it's really really slow and really really painful. Uh, but some of those are by design as well, like uh, extortion sites in particular. Um, most of them are really bad. Most of them are really slow. They don't want to give out a lot of data. They want to cause the fear and uncertainty of having that data out there. It gives them more time to negotiate with the organization, more time for them to be able to actually get the big payout. Um, otherwise, they're just giving away information for free. So they don't really staff it and serve it up well. Gotcha. One of the articles I've been reading and I'm trying to get my hands on the report is one the Instinct Group just put out. Can you go into a little detail about what those guys do? Sure. Um, and uh, uh, if we almost always make, at least eventually, make the, some of those like bigger private reports uh, more open uh, later on, maybe not all of it, but we try to be generally considerate of the community there. Insect group is our in-house research group. Um, insect is actually a Swedish word for insight. And what they do is uh, essentially what a lot of these other research teams do. We have a lot of data. We have a lot of um, information that we can't necessarily just pull into the machine that we use manual harvesting. I think there's two ways that set the Insect group apart from you, like your traditional research team. Most research teams are going to go out there. They have a treasure trove of data, whether it's uh, like from antivirus software or from um, some other type of organization. They're pulling it in, they process it, and they're kind of looking at it for like the, hey, this the machine couldn't quite process this. We need a human to really take a look at it. Our insect team does the same, but one of the things that sets them apart is that they will tune it and use it to identify new sourcing to drive it back into like our core product. So they'll author reports. We obviously have reports that you can purchase if you're a client. Uh, we do public kind of facing reports. Uh, uh, some of the recent ones came out regarding uh, China's attacks on India. Um, 
we have reports around like in certain ransomware that have come out there. We conduct interviews with actors on uh, more of the, and the media side, that's kind of the, the Chinese wall over on the record there. Uh, but then we also have, um, a lot of kind of like detailed daily reports that come out for, for our clients about like what's happening in the world. What do you really need to be paying attention to? What do you, what can you focus on today? Um, and then thinking about that, that shifting in how do we actually source the right things in the right ways to get it in the hands of our clients to make their lives a little bit better. Cause you don't always just want to have, let's be honest, all of us are kind of done reading like incredibly long, incredibly lengthy reports. Sometimes I just need like, show me the information that I need right now. If I got a report, just let me dump the IOCs and like go hunting with it. Let me get the YAR rule that you crafted off of it. I can tear it apart and then, you know, build my own for signature detection in my sim. Um, and so we try to provide kind of that full scale of services there. So in regard to the insect group, you guys just put out the China digital, uh, colonization report. Is that something we can talk about? Sure. That's been a concern of mine over the last 15 years. I grew up in the Caribbean, yeah. so I am intimately aware of how China has been coming in via technology to take over everything. Uh, where do you, what do you guys see there? So, uh, that report was written by, um, a good friend of mine, Charity. Uh, she has this wealth of experience of being able to dig up, kind of, kind of where China has, uh, you know, been carefully and strategically implanting itself globally. And I, I want to kind of draw this interesting divide there because like, I, I guess, you know, I, I'm of Asian descent. It's important to me to kind of like separate out. Like when we talk about China, we're not talking about the people, the history, that stuff. They're really talking about a, like a particular government, a way a particular nation tries to flex influence globally. When you're looking at this idea of digital colonization, really where they've been crafty is thinking about how to apply soft power in a in a semi-kinetic or more aggressive fashion than we've previously seen. And they've done it through technology. They've done it through kind of the technology advantage that they both have had inherent in that they are far more willing to kind of exploit their environment in a almost industrial age type of thing, and also willing to leverage the organizations that they have uh, as far as company and technology companies, especially to be able to kind of spread and proliferate this, this uh, you know, Chinese infrastructure. Uh, and we've seen it in, uh, countries globally, you, I think a lot of the geopolitical articles have been written around, uh, China's influence in, for example, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, but you see it in other areas as well. They really tried to establish these regional spheres of influence without all, uh, with also having kind of like a global, uh, telecommunication spread as well. It's, it's scary because you're allowing one very tightly controlled, tightly knit oligarchical type of organization, which that really is what the CCP is to be able to have a broader influence and flex than we've seen uh, almost ever in the history of, uh, of humankind, right? Um, through the technology companies, through their approaches in, um, in academia, uh, through their approaches in being able to uh, especially with technology infrastructure, I think you saw like us push back pretty hard against some of these. Uh, areas there and said, like, look, this is, this is a global threat to kind of free democracy. When you start having one uh, organization that just has this much free will and control there. But a lot of their technology companies is also tied to taking loans mm -hmm. that are funded by China. And, you know, we, us has a lot of sovereign debt loans from China in terms, you know, are you familiar with the Hudson Yards yeah. in New York city? Yeah. 
the infrastructure loan there was, I think, half a billion funded by the Chinese, one of the Chinese national banks. And a lot of these countries, especially in Africa, and I think to a certain degree in Australia, they were taking all the Huawei tech for telecom undersea cabling, and it was all funded by China. So at a certain point, how do we stop that? How do we get around those kinds of threats, especially when we don't have manufacturing here? Yeah, uh, I, I think there's a couple different things that you, you could start to approach there. One, I, I think you have to start looking at like global finance as, as a tool for freedom and democracy and not just as a tool for uh, providing loan and payment. I'm less concerned about the organization of the United States accepting money from China. I know that sounds kind of perverse, but like, hear me out. I'm less concerned about that than I am about like other nations accepting it because the difference is in scale and in freedom. There are debt considerations that you take in when you take money from almost anywhere. And there's large organizations, especially construction has almost always taken international finance money. Um, the U S has though a lot more like kind of strictures around it. And you're as a lender, you're taking on a lot more risk when you do that. Um, and so the U S is almost a more sheltered area where I start getting really concerned is when you start seeing whole nations borrowing vast amounts of money, um, or, or kind of coming under huge portions of their economy coming under vast influence of one particular nation. Um, I, I think that, you know, the, one of the historic examples coming from the Caribbean has always been like, uh, Haiti and their debt to, um, France and, and that still plagues them today. So uh, for those of you who don't know, like Haiti basically was the site of the only, um, slave revolt, successful slave revolt, and they established their own country out of it. But the, the downside is, is that France kind of held this financial obligation, said, you have to pay us back for all of this land and all this thing. And that debt still hangs over them uh, today and still hangs over and plagues their society. I think you worry about that same type of thing when you're looking at places like Sub-Saharan Africa and when you have societies that are so heavily indebted to one particular nation, one particular nation that has like this control through uh, their financial system, which is always kind of a, you know, you can see the state control direction behind that. That to me gets very concerning because now you're not just talking about like, you know, oh, hey, they could take over this company. They could, you know, kind of disrupt this particular little area or city. But now you're talking about, hey, they can push national policy and influence decision makers in ways that run counter to freedom, run counter to uh, the best interests of the populace there. But that also ties in to getting access to natural resources. It absolutely does. And, and I, and, like, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I think like that's going to be, I, I think like not just the pure natural resources kind of keep funding our, our massive, like, you know, you can go on the consumerism debate there, but I think like really the one that really scares me is water. And you started seeing access to access to oil because although the like places like in, in nations like the United States, we're trying to push like green energy to do it. We're not doing super great at it, but we're still trying to have the investment in there. Whereas you see other nations are still, in order to really build their economy, they're really going to need like fuel. They're still going to need water. Um, and those kind of resources, as they become more constrained, they're going to be really critical when you're building societies. And it worries me when you're starting to look at like, all right, we can either borrow money to do this massive water infrastructure project from like China, because that's the only place that's going to loan it to us. And in exchange, they kind of get free wheel to run in that country and do whatever they want and influence our policymakers in ways that, you know, kind of give them regional access and control. 
or we can just not provide water to our people. And you don't really have a choice at that stage. But how do we combat that? You know, that's my question, right? It's because now they have access to all the raw materials for chips. Mm-hmm. We, our army is probably more technically advanced than it's ever been in the history of the United States. And how can we be confident that our gear is not compromised? I mean, sure. drawing a comparison here, and it's my favorite one, Supermicro is said to have had chips embedded by the MSS. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, well, there's a couple couple facets to that that we should probably dive into. Uh, I think the broader question is like, how do you combat some of this stuff is it's, you need big global policy and we need to come to some, some levels of agreement um, about kind of like what the table stakes are when you're setting it up in the larger strokes, it's not that different. I mean, us and other countries have been flexing influence through soft power and other ways for, for a long time. Uh, but generally a bit more transparent on it. I now, I, I think to your particular question, when you're talking about like, how do we like, especially when you're talking about like war fighters and how do we you know build this inherent and protect this inherent, um, you know trusted ability to do stuff. There's a couple of things that I kind of need to set the table on. The first is that the U S is probably the only country in the world or one of the very few countries in the world that almost can completely build out their, uh, national defense infrastructure in just the U S we still have the capability. Yeah. A lot of raw material, like for example, rare earth materials are not that rare. We still have a lot of ability to both reharvest them through recycling and also being able to still kind of, you know, harvest and purchase from like other global supply chains for like the, the raw minerals and raw uh, metals that we need. That being said, um, you know, when those things start getting constructed, you start having like supply chain regulation controls that start happening in the U S those have been loosened over the last, uh, about 20 years since, uh, and you started seeing like, there are basically two bodies of laws that control it. You have ITAR and you have EAR. Um, those are the big ones. And then you also have like, you know, don't the, the whole, uh, OFAC don't do business with like these five countries kind of thing, but like, we'll leave them out of it for a second. If I'm going to build, let's say an aircraft carrier, cause that's probably one of the biggest and most complex things that I can build. You used to be almost everything on it was completely controlled. That's bad in a sense that if I'm a manufacturer and I build a particular bolt for that aircraft carrier, I can never sell that bolt ever anywhere else in the world. Um, we still have remnants of that in terms of say like trusted foundry, trusted foundry is a program, uh, that is essentially saying like, listen, there are certain places in the United States that we can manufacture chips. They can run, uh, limited runs of these particular types of chips that we need, whether they're ASICs or, uh, uh, FPGAs. Um, for those of you who don't know, an ASICs is like, uh, the chip that goes into your, uh, your, uh, iPhone, a FPGA is like a, um, a, like kind of the same chip design that you can change around in a few different ways and you can make it fit a lot of different applications, really useful manufacturing and other defense applications. Um, where that comes into play is you still have these manufacturing houses that exist in the United States. Um, but they're mainly slaved towards that defense industry. And the one thing that makes defense unique is lifetime buys. The Department of Defense will buy out everything they need to build a particular ship. And it's not just for a particular ship, it's for like the next 30 years. Um, so if you ever look at like big shipyards in the United States, one of the things they do is they do lifetime buys. So they'll contract with a particular, uh, like chip manufacturer in the U S that is part of that trusted foundry program. They'll say, Hey, we need enough of these chips to guarantee we can build however many chips we need. Plus 
the next, you know, any services or repairs that we need for the next 30 years. Um, and then they'll keep that stuff around and running. That's why you see these things go into incredibly long life cycles there. I think that program is pretty sound. It works pretty well. Where you get into concerns is not the direct kind of like, how do we guarantee the security of uh, these programs from the physical standpoint, but it's from the software standpoint and from the kind of that extended logistical infrastructure that you need to support it. So like if the ship is fine, what about the software that goes into the ship? What about, and that's where you saw a lot of these organizations that were being uh, breached were not just like the big defense contractors, the smaller ones. And you saw big defense contractors, you know, getting hacked as well. Um, when you start looking at like the, all right, let's not just the capabilities and the weapons capability of it, but what about the national uh, communications infrastructure that's reliant to feed into that ship to tell it where to go? How are we protecting um, like our, our internal digital communications across the United States? Like what are those systems? What are those routers? And that's really where you start getting into like that concern of like, what are we doing to protect that individual router, which one or two of them, you know, if they're made in China, we're probably not going to be that concerning. But when you have millions of them across households, now you get a big enough sensor that that becomes really appealing for like a government like China to say, hey, is this something that we should be considering targeting? Is this something that we can kind of bake in to target, uh, to bring enough sensor data that in the aggregate, it becomes really, really valuable to us. To me, that's the biggest threat there. It's like, hey, is my cell phone a threat? Is my router a threat? Maybe not to you, but all of them together in aggregate create this really, really powerful signal that can be a threat to the United States. From a cyber warfare perspective, who do you think is the bigger threat, China or Russia or Iran, North Korea? I think that it's, it's challenging when you bring that perspective, uh, because cyber warfare gets into all of these other, um, conceptions. Like what, what do we actually consider that? Is it, does it have to result in kinetic action? Is it just, um, intrusions? How much does espionage play into it? Um, I would, like, I would say at this point in time, the espionage and data collection is probably higher on their list. I don't think anyone wants to go kinetic at this point, even though China is gearing up a really strong Navy from the looks of it, but it's about data collection right now. And I've always been under the impression that from the beginning of ransomware with the big groups, it's been a cover for data exfiltration back to one of those four countries for lack of anything else. So the data exfiltration part worries me. I, I did a lot of time in counterintelligence. So anytime somebody's stealing my knowledge, it's, it's really concerning. But the one that I like, let me put this frame around cyber warfare for you. And I'll say this, I think we're seeing it right now. I think it gets vastly underreported and I don't, and I'm going to exclude espionage out of it. So let's take out the economic espionage and, 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 um, information steering from it. And let's take out the, um, like purely like access type of stuff from it. So like, you know, uh, breaching supply chain or get broader access to pull down, like, you know, email data list. So like solar winds is, I'm not going to consider that in the realm of cyber warfare. Let's look at, I think you're seeing regional threats happening in flexing a power because they're resource, um, the relatively resource light. Uh, I'll bring two examples. One is when you look at Russia and the way they're flexing controlling power inside of the former Soviet republics, everyone talks about Ukraine. Estonia is another example. You're seeing kind of low level intrusions that are relatively inexpensive for the country that's pursuing it 
but costly in terms of time, energy, effort, and focus in the country that's being being attacked in this way. Um, Russia, you saw like in, Russia's been doing this for a long time, like well before um, you had like Ukraine blackouts, you had um, Estonian infrastructure getting taken down. You had these kind of harassment campaigns that uh, whether it's taking down power and energy companies, whether it's the fear that somebody could take down power, energy, water, infrastructure companies, um, or just the, the time it takes to like when your businesses get taken down. Um, I think the other example that you see that we've reported on a lot from our INSA group is you look at China versus India. Um, China is trying to, my opinion on this is, is that you're seeing a lot of Chinese infrastructure attacks against India right now. Um, and where they're targeting things like, um, power and energy companies, they're targeting kind of, uh, commercial and government, uh, organizations there. And I think you look at the overall scope of that, and you have to ask yourself why, like, why, why are they expending these resources? Why are they trying to attack, like, you know, and do things that don't seem to be just data theft, but seem to be potentially like harassing and potentially disruptive to those organizations, to that, to that country as a whole. And I think you start looking at that in my mind, you're saying like, well, China is looking for that same resource gain in the South China Sea right now. They are currently engaging most of their neighbors in India as a bordering country and in both resource and in kind of constraining policy. Um, when you look at uh, India, their, their naval presence is probably one of the most formidable in that uh, kind of the Indian Ocean there. And you start asking yourself questions like China, if I'm China and I need to kind of contain a country that borders me and I need to try and think about ways that I don't, I can't bomb them. I can't strike them. I don't really want to get into full on warfare because it's not going to be productive, um, for anyone. Cause you know, we'll come in and a bunch of other places will come in and be like, you can't do warfare now. Um, how do I fight that? How do I like be aggressive without being like too aggressive and cyber is that perfect route for it. So I can harass, I can contain, I can make you spend resources, time, effort, energy, just to keep your economy up and functioning. And all of this, by the way, is in a pandemic, which India has been horrifically hit by. And now wh where do I focus on? If I'm the country of India, I'm trying to protect and build up an economy, but yet somebody is actively harassing and, and running campaigns against my government that I can't, I can't block. I don't have an ability to kind of sustain and they seem to be very persistent at it. That's, that's a hard thing. And I'm able to flex, like, as a country like China can say, I can flex power against that without necessarily having to like be kind or negotiate with you or trying to like, you know, give you a bunch of gifts and stuff like that. It's a way to cheaply show you I can have dominance over. But couldn't the same be said of China and the U S at this point? I it mean could be, uh, I think the, the challenge there is that uh, on one hand, I think you have a little bit of a nascent fear of us and us capabilities and it's residual um and it's it's pretty strong because i think most countries and most most researchers in, in the cybersecurity field are just going to generally throw a statement out there the equation group is that sleeping lion right like we don't know what we don't know but the things that we've seen are really scary and really interesting and you have let's say you take the us cyber capability versus like russia cyber capability they have different approaches to it the us went out there, was aggressive, was hyper complex and really interesting, but seemed to be very targeted and, and narrow as well in their path, which is you look at kind of like Russia as the, as the opposite example there. Russia seemed to almost advertise their capability through these broader scale attacks. 
Uh, I've seen some go out there and say, like, if you look at not Petya or you look at bad rabbit campaigns, those almost appeared like they, they were meant to be massive, but somewhat truncated in, in a, in scope because they could have been a lot worse. And it almost seemed as if they were saying, we have these capabilities. You don't want to know what else we have here better fall in line. Okay. Do you think we slept on Russia and China over the last 20 years while we were focusing on the Middle East? I think that we had to make trade-offs as a country and one threat we didn't know how bad it was and what to really do about it and approach. We also thought that we probably had the better capability, which, which might've been true as far as an aggressor standpoint, uh, rather than like a defensive standpoint. Um, I, I security expert named Mara Tam, Mara Tam, she's spoken a lot at, um, like troopers and other things like that. She wrote this really interesting, uh, paper talking about anti-patterns in, um, like ICT and other United Nations kind of approaches to, uh, this idea of like cyber norms. I bring it up because one of the things that she brings up is that as she cites, uh, this other researcher, basically it said like 20 years ago, Russian Federation actually brought a proposal to the United Nations saying, Hey, let's set a standard that like, there are some weapons that are just too bad to use in the cyber route. Can we agree? Like let's, that some stuff is just too bad. We should just all agree on this right now. And the U S outright rejected it. And the reason they rejected the Russian revolution, uh, Rus Russian resolution that was brought to the UN is that at least part of the thinking was, well, why, why should we, why should we limit ourselves when we're, we're probably better in our estimation, we're far more advanced than these other countries. Why not just keep our own advantage? Why would we ever give that up? Um, has that resulted in kind of where we are today, where now you see like nation state attacks that can then be leveraged, uh, leveraged and weighed on by like criminal actors and the way that market is interacting in, in ways that we might not have been able to predict. Do we regret that? I don't know. I don't speak for us policymakers right now, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessarily fair to say that we slept on it so much as it was a novel threat. We didn't have a full understanding of it. And we felt as if the U S had the upper hand. So why not just take it for a while and, and ride? Gotcha. Where do you think we stand in terms of the cybersecurity posture of the defense industrial base? And I'll, uh, the reason I ask this is because three months ago, I went in to do an assessment at a government contractor and they have been popped 10 ways till Sunday. And their product is in every government agency in the U.S., multiple governments around the world and hundreds of thousands of businesses. I had a call with them yesterday and they still haven't begun remediating anything. And I can't imagine they're much different from any of our, our DIB supply chain. So I think that it's been a challenge for, um, the government to the U S government to try and figure out like exactly how do we secure this this base and there's been a lot of push i mean the the cmmc really started going down that pathway of like let's set some broad standards of like where you can go and where you can have access when you're trying to do it and the other side of that came in the information control side where there was this big push and there still is a big push around um like unclassified but sensitive type of information there um or like this uh you know controlled but unclassified the cui type of information there 
I think it's important to understand that there, there's kind of like tiers when you're looking at the defense industrial base. The top tier are all the biggest names in when you think of like big industrial complex like names there. Um, those are, those have really magnificent teams. Like I, I've worked with some of the teams. Um, they are really great. Like you're talking about your, your Raytheons, your Lockheed's, um, your, uh, you know, Grumman's, uh, those are really, really good teams and they have a really good understanding of it where you start losing it, where it starts getting a little bit more wheelies once you get down to like widget manufacturers and everybody else who works with those big companies as product manufacturers and suppliers, they can have really broad reach to your point. They can have products that go into a lot of different applications. They're almost like any other mom and pop shop in the United States. They do have regulations controls. They have a little bit more relationship that they have to comply with, with like the U S government, as far as regulation goes, but they're, they're ultimately resource constrained, like any other small businesses. Um, these are like manufacturing firms that are just like a single building in the middle of you know, the Northeast, or this can be like a small place that just does, um, like some type of like small computer component or like customized chips in the you know, Pacific Northwest. I, I think it's important to understand, like they have the same problems as any other like print shop or retail place that you have throughout the United States. And so like when, as far as their security, I think there are layers there. I think, um, there's been a test by government to try and set policy to try and come in there. That's where the CMMC has come in. There's been a long dialogue between DOD and industry regarding, um, should there be contractual requirements that those companies provide uncompromised products, but like, you know, how, how are you going to judge that? But aren't um, those already in place, those kind of contractual obligations or isn't part of, you know, the FedRAMP side of the government? trying to audit these people to make sure there's a certain amount of competency behind their infrastructure to produce. So there's, there's a couple challenges there. Yes, there are, there are audits that happen on security side, but a lot of that auditing process still has to be held to like an accountability, like framework. And so you still have a lot of that old, um, like conformance type of, uh, security rather than having um, like, you know, proactive type of security a, as far as like how we approach it. Um, I think we were talking on the, um, uh, the, the rocket MSP show and you talked about like, Hey, I just want to get people to stop, you know, self-accrediting. Like they shouldn't be able to do that. Like you just, you, you should have to force them to do it. You see that all over the place though, because you have a lot of these shops that listen, if you're going to hire uh, a security professional work at your organization and just, that's all they do. And you're going to give them a bunch of work. Um, at a minimum, you're talking a uh, $100,000 a year layout. That's for the person, for whatever program they bring in, for everything else that you're going to do just for baseline compliance. And that's usually just for national security side. That's the classified work. That's making sure you're meeting your contractual obligations and everything else there. Now talk about information security and it becomes a lot more complex. Like how do you secure an environment where you don't, you're looking at like kind of a lot of old practices. You're looking at companies that operate like any mom and pop, like maybe the owner has the manufacturing place, but they also have an ice hockey rink that their nephew plays at. And they really, really want their IT guy to go over there and fix the Wi-Fi. Um, I think then, you, you know, you start getting into that way of like, all right, how do we actually mature this? I think come, part of it comes from regulatory controls of like more than just checklists. Like you can't just go in there and check the page file of a particular thing and say, okay, it's been cleared. You can't just go in there with this checkbox type of security approach 
uh, and say that these systems are inherently secure. You have to go in there with, right, how are we meeting up with like, you know, the 20 CSC controls? Um, I think that's one of the big things that they're trying to push with like the CMMC. Can we go in there and be a little bit more thoughtful as to how we're approaching and how we're applying that proactive stance of like, what is all the components of a really good security program for the scale that we're at? Is Recorded Future tracking the threats into the ICS world, specifically CNC machines and such like that, that do work for the DIB? So we do track threats into like the OT and the ICS space. Um, they are more challenging because those, by the very nature, those attacks are going to be a lot more targeted. Um, it's, it's hard to, like, you haven't really seen like an OT worm happen yet. Knock on wood. Thank God. And part of it's because almost every one of those environments is unique. Um, they're, they're, they require a lot of thought. They require a lot of, um, know, planning as you're going into them, if you're going to be like an attacker. And so it's like a lot harder to necessarily kind of like go in there, identify, and then like kind of broad scale track, uh, like what those actors are doing, uh, which is why you don't really see a lot of it, right? Like we've only heard like with colonial pipeline, they shut down their OT network out of hesitancy and, and just, you know, abundance of safety, not because they actually saw that the ransomware had made over that jump there. Um. I think for me, like you're seeing a lot more in like energy spaces, probably in like, you know, infrastructure there, not so much into like mom and pop CNC machines there. Um, I think that probably for a couple different reasons, the big one for me though, is, I mean, I, I don't know as an actor what I'm going to get if I pop a CNC machine, but the windows 95 test machine that's running right over there, maybe that's a little bit more interesting, but that's like, is that really OT since it's a test bed, it's isolated, it's standalone. They never patch it, but it's what they need to keep that one old, whatever, whether it's a CNC or cutter or anything out there all up and operating. And we've all seen it. We've all been in it. If you've ever been in any company, any environment that's manufactured, they all have that type of thing. Like, oh, it's a standalone test bed. We isolate it from the network, but you know, we don't even bother updating. Just get, we just need to keep the thing running. So what would you rate as the top threats in just the in cyber general? world? Just in general. Top three. I, I think it's really hard to think of one that's more um, prolific right now than ransomware. Um, and it's not so much that, you know, when you're scaling threats, you have to think about like real world impact. I think ransomware right now is that threat because it's so unwieldy. It's not targeted. It's not, um, you don't see do care and diligence by a lot of these actors. Like you've seen some kind of lip service by some of them saying, Hey, we're not going to go after like hospitals or something like that. Okay. If that were really the case, then why has the number of ransomware attacks on schools and hospitals been so high? I think you have a lot of actors who have realized they can get into the ransomware game for relatively cheap and start making money relatively quickly. And so they're testing out capabilities in places like, you know, schools and hospitals and other healthcare environments. And to me, like that, I, I'm a parent of two small kids. You start affecting my kid's school, you start affecting um, their ability to get healthcare. Those are real world impacts. And I think that's really kind of ultimately like where, where we're most concerned about is that merger of the physical and the logical. We're coming up on time here. So I just want to be mindful of what you have going on. How do we get involved with Recorded Future if we wanted to? Not sure. me, but just anyone, including me, but, you know. 
Well, I, I like we're, like a lot of other, um, there's three companies out there. I think on one hand, we do have a plethora of materials that we put out there, um, both in technical reporting from our NSIG group. Um, the, we try to generally contribute to the community you know, through um, uh, the research that we could provide out there through, uh, I mean, obviously there's, we're still in the business of selling things. So we do have like marketing stuff on there as well. Uh, but we provide out PDF reports. We have our own GitHub page that we provide out like IOCs for any of the research that comes out from Insight Group. Uh, we also have uh, some technical tools that we provide out there to the community at large. We have a browser extension, which allows you to kind of kind of go over a page and uh, quickly pick out the IOCs from that page and understand like what we assess their risk to be. Uh, so if you're looking at a page that has like say a dump of a bunch of IP addresses, we can quickly tell you like, hey, why are these uh, particular IP addresses like on this list? Are any of them particularly concerning? Now we're not going to show you like your environment because that's that would be what you have to know, um, at least in the browser extension. But we can show you a kind of broad prioritization of like, hey, um, based on what we're seeing here, this IP is a C2, or like a lot of these are active C2s for you know particular malware, um, and that's available free for download for anybody. You can just get it from the Chrome store, or from like if you're using Firefox or anything like that. Um, and then, you know, we do present a lot at conferences, a lot of, uh, places like shows like this, uh, try to provide out, uh, commentary to the community and we're all kind of just open and available to chat. Um, if you're looking to kind of go down the, the more, you know, commercial route and say like, Hey, we want, we want a solution here. We need this, uh, thing to come in there. Um, my, my first inclination is, well, I'm not a salesperson, but I would always tell people like, listen, think about where you are and think about really carefully about what data that you need in your environment. I think it's like, it's easy for like, you know, I, I work for the company and I want to kind of put a message out there, but we've had organizations that come in, they bought threat intelligence because they felt they needed it, that but to fulfill some checklist or internal requirement. And then we get in there and they're like, we want you to tell us what you should do with threat intelligence. Like, well, how do we approach this? Um, and we're more than willing to do that, but I think there's an approach where you need to look at your own organization and say, um, what exactly do we want to get out of it? How do we benchmark our success with taking this external data or taking this external perspective in and where are we going to apply it? Do we need context in our SIM? Do we need to help tune automation so that our automation and our sole product can actually work uh, the way that we want it to? Do we need uh, prioritization and vulnerabilities? We want a better way than just looking at uh, CVSS scores and thinking about, all right, what's going on with this vulnerability? Maybe we want to bring in external data that says, Hey, this is being discussed on dark web markets. This is, uh, there are patches. This is being openly exploited. Um, so I think it's just being thoughtful as you look at your entire security environment and thinking like, Hey, where do we want to bring in? Where do we want to invite in a partner here to help us with this, uh, before you make that jump into saying, all right, let's, let's buy a solution. Let's buy another product in there. Cause I think we really want to be impactful when we're trying to come into an environment and helping organizations. No, I completely agree. I mean, it's like some of these guys or some of these people who buy a SIM, just have a really fancy place to put some logs. Yep. There's a, there's an old joke among, uh, like not joke, but a kind of a analogy amongst people that like run SIMs. It's like you saw people that just bought kind of one off the shelf and sometimes they're harder to work with, uh, because they don't inherently understand the technology that's underneath it. Um, you talk about people that have just kind of homegrown one or built one out of like an elk stack. They all know exactly what's going into their sim. They all know exactly how it's tuned because they, they don't have a choice. They're in that thing every day and they're making it work. Right. Alrighty. 
So how can people reach out to you? I know you're very active on Twitter, or at least I see you're very active on Twitter. Uh, yep. On Twitter, uh, John, uh, so like John Wetzel, uh, there, um, you can reach out, uh, via email. I'm always happy to like, uh, help and respond. Uh, that's just John at recorded future. One of the perks of being around the company that long. Uh, I'm available on LinkedIn. Um, and then if you have just general inquiries, you can actually, uh, just reach out to, uh, us via our, like our website or anything else there. Um, like every other, I think vendor out there, we have a chat, but I swear to God though, it's not intrusive and we're not going to make you go through it to like read any of our reports. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for joining us. Cool. Hey, thanks for having me.